Well, good morning, and I'm glad you're with us. I hope you have your Bible. If you do, please open them to Jonah chapter 4. And this morning, we're going to wrap up our look at the book of Jonah together. And we have finished in under a year, which is good. We have made our way as far as chapter 3, verse 10. So let's pick it up in chapter 4, verse 1. Let's read it together. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it and in the shade till he, he could, should see what would become of the city. And now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up, the next day God appointed a worm, and that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plants? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, enough to die. And the Lord said, You pitied the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And I should not pity uh, Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and so much cattle. If the book of Jonah were to end with verse 10 of chapter 3, we would hail Jonah as one of the great evangelists of all times. It would be like Billy Graham going to a city and there within the city, let's say the city of Chicago, hosting a, a crusade rally there in Soldier Field. And instead of all of the attendants there in Soldier Field coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ, as he's giving his altar call, the whole city of Chicago repents. And then afterwards, people see Billy Graham sitting in the corner, and he's all angry about it. He's exceedingly angry about it. The emotions don't fit what has just happened. There must be something more going on. As we look at the book of Jonah together, it is not only the, uh, the repentance of Nineveh that should grasp our attention, but also the work that God is doing in the prophet Jonah himself. For through this uh, illustration and this experience that Jonah was led to have in God, Jonah is being confronted with the realities of the, his own evil wickedness of his own personal heart. From the very beginning of the conception of the nation of Israel, they were meant to be a witness to all the world for the glory of God. But because of their rebellion against God, God was continuously dealing with them rather than allow them allowing themselves to be a witness to draw on the whole world onto them uh, onto a Christ, onto God, and as a result, they never fulfilled the purpose in which God originally established them for. And Jonah had been a faithful prophet to this time. 
called upon in verse 1 of chapter 1 to go and to proclaim to Nineveh that it was time for judgment to come. Jonah ran and disobeyed God. There was something within Jonah that he feared greater than displeasing the Lord. For this fear that he had was greater within him and therefore he was able to disobey the Lord and heed his own personal fear. The fear in which Jonah carried within him was the fear of forgiveness. That's what we're going to discover this morning. That Jonah feared that God would grant to the Ninevites forgiveness. See, Jonah realized that God had set the nation of Israel aside for his purposes, for his plans. And though at this particular moment in time under King Jeroboam II, Israel was experiencing a great time of prosperity, a great time of wealth building. Uh, They were experiencing great military expansion. And yet the spiritual erosion within the nation continued. God was trying to show them kindness and hoping that kindness would lead them to repentance. But it didn't. And the prophets at that time, Jonah along with Amos and uh, Hosea, were calling the nation back to God and they saw and witnessed for themselves that the nation wasn't interested in coming back to God. They wanted all the blessings, but they didn't want the God who was blessing them. And so they knew that it was only a matter of time until God once again dealt with the nation of Israel and the manner in which he dealt with them is that he would have an invading army, an invading force come and deal with his people to once again get their attention. When the children of Israel were in the place that God wanted them to be, he would be their great defender. But when they would sin against God, he would show them their sin by allowing an invading army to come and to conquer them. That army was often the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the ones who occupied the city of Nineveh. And we are going to discover this morning that Jonah was fearful of the character of God. He was afraid of forgiveness. See, there are some who are fear forgiveness because then it would cause them to reconcile with one that they've chosen to hate instead, as in the case of Jonah. There are some who fear forgiveness because they simply don't want to work through the reconciliation process. And in Jonah's case, God's people were his people. The Gentile were always considered wicked people. And this established Jonah's identity within the world. God forgiving the Gentiles as if he forgave, as he would forgive the Israelites would then place them on an equal footing before God. And this would eliminate or destroy the Israeli identity as God's favor, God's chosen people. But there are other who fear forgiveness because if forgiveness is granted, as God is about to grant or has granted to the Ninevites, it reveals the sin within the heart of the prophet Jonah. It is that that we deal with this morning. Just as much as God loved the Ninevites and cared for them, as we saw that in last week in chapter 3, verse 3 in the Hebrew, it states that Nineveh was a great city, and then the Hebrew phrase is to God, Elohim, in the Hebrew. And I don't know why the English versions don't reflect that. It mattered to God. This city that was wicked and opposed to all that God who is and all that God stands for, he still cared about. And then when Jonah was finally obedient and went into the city and proclaimed in 40 days the judgment of God would fall, he then discovered that the Ninevites reacted in the exact manner in which he was hoping they would not. They repented. And he left the city. And in verse 10 of chapter 3, 
when God saw what they had did, that is the Ninevites and their repentance, how they turned from their evil way, God relented the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, you would think that Jonah at this point would rejoice over the effectiveness of his ministry, right? And yet that's not what we get. In fact, in verse 1, which is written in a Hebrew parallelic uh, position, a parallelic position in Hebrew is that two statements are written together, one plays off the other one, and so written in this parallelic position, we have verse 10 and verse 1 playing off of each other. God saw, God relented, and uh, he did not do that in which he said he would do. And as a result, look at what happens, Jonah then recedingly enjoy, rejoices and has a party there on the beach. Is that what happens? No. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. The Hebrew could actually be uh, rendered in the English, Jonah was extremely hot under the collar. He was furious with what has just happened. To the point that he was so angry that he then lifts up this prayer out of the motivation of his anger. Notice this in verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I had said yet when I was in my own country? I knew it, Lord. I knew it. I knew it. What did you know? What was so bad? What is so terrible? Jonah, why are you so angry? This is exactly the reason I fled to Tarshish. This is it. I knew it. For I knew that you were a gracious God, merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. His theology actually ticked him off. He knew God so well and so personally that he knew that if they were to turn from their wicked ways because of who God is, God would relent from the disaster in which he set in course to overthrow them. It is interesting to me, I've never seen any prophet of God react to the kindness of God in such a way. Now, do you think his anger was uh, significant? Well, the word exceedingly is used there. It means out of proportion, uh, out of himself. But notice that he goes on to say in verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And in verse 4, the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? When individuals uh, attempt to interpret the Bible, there is one aspect of the Bible that's always very challenging to interpret. And that is the aspect of tonality. How did God say these words? And the manner in which he says them gives us the manner in which his heart is reflected within them. For example... Let me give it to you this way. Depending on who you listen to, if you're going through the book of Genesis and you come to that point where Adam and Eve have sinned, they then hide themselves, they you know, cover themselves with fig leaves, they hide themselves from the presence of the Lord, the Lord then starts to walk through the garden and says, Adam and Eve, where are you? Now, some will preach it as, God is angry. Adam and Eve, where are you? Now, of course, God fully knew where Adam and Eve were. They weren't hiding from him. But hearing it that way gives you a depiction that God is angry with them. Or did God simply say, Adam and Eve, where are you? A loving father calling his children back to him. I believe it is the latter of the two. Often in the Hebrew language, we can get an indication of the intensity that would be described by an exclamation point in an English text, 
But here, I believe that God is simply saying, listen, Jonah, do you do well or are you justified in your anger? Should you be angry over this? Either being my character or the response of the Ninevites or my response to the Ninevites' response to the message in which you proclaimed. Don't I have the right, the sovereign right, to relent if I so choose to do? Why are you angry about this Jonah? Now, we know why he ran, because he feared the forgiveness that could possibly be offered to them. But now he is saying to the Lord, like Elijah did, Oh Lord, just kill me now. This is too difficult for me to bear. Aren't you glad that God sometimes doesn't answer our prayers? I bet you Jonah is at this moment. Or doesn't answer our prayers more specifically the way we would ask them to be answered. You see, God loved Jonah too, just as much as he cared for the Ninevites. He did not want his prophet to remain in the mindset and carrying the bad attitudes in which he was carrying towards the Ninevite people. For God desires that his people reflect his character to the world around them. And right now, Jonah was incapable of doing so. And what we are going to discover as we further make our way through chapter 4 is God trying to draw out of Jonah these attitudes and showing Jonah why he should reflect the attitudes of God himself to the people around him no matter what. Now, we already see that Jonah has been put into a place, into a position that could be very, very difficult for him. If the Jewish people had now heard that through Jonah's ministry, God has called the Ninevites to repentance, this was the arch enemy of the nation of Israel. This is like, you know, when you have mixed emotions about a Packers fan who gets saved. You don't know to be happy or not, do you? Or tonight, the Vikings fans. Jonah knew that he was already in a position that he would certainly be questioned by his own people. Possibly Amos, possibly Hosea. And he also knew that now the children of Israel were in a very uh, precarious position before God because their enemies have repented, but they are unwilling to acknowledge their sin before God and repent themselves. So Jonah's just saying, kill me now. I, I don't know where to go from this place, this point. I don't know what to do next. But Jonah was right on the money when he says here very clearly in verse 2, And when he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God, a merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. God, you are a God that longs to show your favor to others. God, you are a merciful God that wants to show affection wrapped in compassion towards another person. You're slow to anger, and that in this phrase in the Hebrew means one who is not delighting in the punishment of the wicked. And God, you abound in steadfast love, this faithful love, now apparently, not only to Israel, but to the Gentiles also. From the very beginning of the Old Testament, this has been a banner description of God. I am somewhat grieved when I hear that individuals say, the God of the Old Testament is this unrighteous, angry uh, God, and the God of the New Testament is this God of love and compassion. No, the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament, provoked by his people, needing and requiring to judge them as he promised he would towards them, recorded there for us in the history of the Old Testament. But from the very beginning, this is how God was wanting to be known. 
<coughs> excuse me, look with me as we begin here in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God of merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving the iniquity and the transgressions of sin, but to who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In Nehemiah, I put it up on the slide for you. They refused to obey, speaking of the children of Israel, and were not mindful of the wonders that you had performed among them. But they, that is the people of, the people of Israel, they are a stiff-necked, stubborn people, and appointed a leader to return them to the slavery of Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. For David writes in the Psalms, he writes in Psalm 86, 15 through 17, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save your son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and put, be put to shame because of you, Lord. Because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. And even in Joel, when it talks about the judgment of all, he says, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is what? Gracious, and he is merciful, and slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering or a drink offering for the Lord your God. Over and over and over and over, the Old Testament says, for he is a gracious, slow to anger, merciful, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the God in whom we follow and in whom we serve perfectly depicted in the coming of Jesus Christ. For Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The compassion displayed by Christ is the compassion that was always there in the heart of the Father for his people. But Jonah, he wouldn't have anything to do with it. It put him in a bad position. This situation has now caused Jonah to do one of the most scariest things that any human being can be asked to do, and that is to look into your own heart. God is challenging Jonah to look and to see for what God sees within his own heart and asking Jonah to deal with what he finds within it. Just as Israel was unwilling to be a witness to the whole world, so Jonah now seems to reflect that same character, that same understanding in his own personal actions. But yet it was perfectly acceptable in chapter 2 for Jonah to cry out to God and to receive forgiveness, but now for the Ninevites, who apparently in Jonah's mind was so much further in their wickedness, that in his mind possibly were past the point of no return, God was capable of forgiving them also. Often, we want to believe that we are better than others. Often, we want to determine our value before God, our righteousness before God, in and of our own personal self-righteousness. But let us understand that none of us would be righteous enough before God if it wasn't for the finished work of Jesus Christ. For Jesus Christ not only forgave us of all of our sins and cleansed us through the remission of his blood, through the remission of sin, uh, being washed away by his blood, I should say, but then after bringing us to that position, he then robed us in his personal righteousness. 
He, he robed us and gave us his righteousness. It's called the imputation of righteousness upon us. Only God can do that for you through the person of Jesus Christ. Well, let me explain it this way. If God just simply forgave us of our sin, we would come to God at a zero-sum game. We would be brought to a position of neutrality. But it's not only the sins that we do that we are prohibited from doing that cause an issue before God. It's also the sin of not doing what God has asked us to do that causes difficulty between us and God. There are sins of commission where we do what we are not supposed to do. But there are sins of omission where we don't do those things that we are supposed to do. And the only way to stand perfect before God the Father is in Christ. And this is what justification means, that He forgives us, cleanses us, and then robes us with His righteousness. So then positionally before God the Father, He looks through Christ at us and sees us perfect positionally before Him. Now, practically, we're all still works in progress, aren't we? None of us have yet arrived. None of us have obtained that perfection, and we won't until we die and are given that glorified body that is no longer affected by sin. So if anyone invites you to a perfectly sanctified party, you can refuse. You know, hey, listen, I, this, this week I became perfectly sanctified, meaning that I'm perfect and everybody else is not. I've registered at Target, and you can go there and write down the list. You know, I, I was, you know, gracious. I kept everything under two hundred dollars, and uh, and then you know, just go ahead and just you know, come, and then you can see what perfection looks like. Here's my word of advice to a situation such as that: run and run as fast as you possibly can. And God's working in Jonah. Because God wants Jonah to have the same heart towards these people that he has. Now, how does God go about doing that? From the very beginning, we've seen that God is, again, let me read it to you if you haven't gotten it already, that he's a merciful and gracious God. He's slow to anger, bounding in steadfast love, and and he's faithful. And now he wants to work in Jonah. Forgiveness is very important to God. And I want to direct your attention to Matthew chapter 18. Turn there with me. Matthew chapter 18. First book of the New Testament. It goes from the Italian prophet Malachi to Matthew. And as a result, we are in Matthew chapter 18, and we're going to be starting in verse 25. 21, excuse me. Peter always had profound questions for Jesus as they walked on this earth together. Peter wanted to impress his Lord by the question that follows, believing that he was going to exceed the answer in which Jesus was going to prescribe. Let's read it here in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, that is Peter to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brothers sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? How many, Lord? Seven? That's a profound number. Jesus is going to think I'm pretty forgiving. Seven times. It's also interesting the manner in which he phrases it. Uh, I won't get into that too much other than to say, do you notice that he doesn't consider his sin against another, just his brother's sins against him. Very interesting to look at. But Jesus comes back with something extraordinary, especially if you know the Old Testament. He says this to Peter. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times. Seven times. It is actually in the Greek more profound by saying seven times of 70 or 70, seven times. If you go back to Daniel 
chapter 9, you'll discover that when Israel was asking the Lord, how long shall we be under this weight of, uh, of judgment, Jesus said, uh, 77 week periods have been described for you. It is interesting that Jesus plays on that here. He's basically saying, and I can't make a, a long to-do of it because of our time constraints this morning, but he's saying, just as I dealt with you as a nation, so shall I expect you to forgive those who have wronged you. And so he's asking Peter to consider the history of Israel with God and how many times Israel sinned against God and how many times God forgave Israel. And it would be appropriate to say he forgave over and over and over again. But then he shores it up with this parable illustration, verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. This was an astronomical amount that no one in that culture could possibly pay back in a lifetime. And since he could not pay his master uh, what his master ordered him to, I'm sorry, he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold. And his wife and his children, all that they had, and payment to be made. This was a standard operating procedure for those who could not pay their debts. They would be slowed, uh, sold into servanthood. And as a result, he, they would... Uh, have to work the debt back. But this would have been a lifetime of servitude. They could have never paid this debt back. And as a result, so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of 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 that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which was a meager amount compared to what he had just been forgiven. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him into prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw that uh, what he had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summons him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt, which was an impossibility. So also my heavenly father will do for every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Forgiveness, important to God or not. And it's based upon how God has forgiven you. Now, this forgiveness is directed in this case, brothers, meaning someone, in this case, it would have been an Israelite, Israelite. In our cases, it would be a brother and sister in Christ. But the scriptures are also clear that we are to forgive our enemies, those who hate us and persecute us. There is a teaching that I am absolutely opposed to that I must bring up at this point. There are some who advocate that we as Christians are not compelled to forgive unless we are asked to forgive them by the one who has wronged us. They conclude this based upon the understanding of how salvation works. Of course, salvation is rendered to one who repents and puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But when it comes between us and another human being, it appears to me that God is asking us to forgive, period. Not on the basis of the person uh, who has wronged us asking for that forgiveness, on the basis that Christ has forgiven us all of our sins. 
And so I really believe that many have been falsely justified in their unforgiveness towards another simply because they are waiting for that individual to ask for forgiveness. Now, you can forgive someone without them soliciting that forgiveness from you. And what that does for you is that it releases you from that bondage. It releases you from that bitterness that is growing and eroding you from the inside out. Now, are you saying to me, Pastor, I should forgive them and then they go free and they're innocent of their charge? No, what I'm saying is forgive them and let God deal with them. Forgive them and let God deal with them. That's what I'm saying. Because everything is open and naked unto the Lord, and they will be held accountable for what they have done. Now you say, well, that's a very idealistic thing to do. It is. But I also believe it's what God has called us to do. And God has not asked us to do this in and of ourselves. He is first motivated by the forgiveness that we have experienced in Him, and then He has given the Spirit of God to us to help us to forgive those who have wronged us. I myself am a person who can speak to experience with this. My mother was an alcoholic for over 50 years, and when she drank, she was very violent. My childhood was very difficult. I won't get into the details. My teenage years was very difficult, and then I became a Christian at 16. I was so angry because of the past in which I had experienced that I allowed it to affect many of my new Christian years in Christ. Eventually, I was confronted with the reality that I needed to deal with this issue of forgiveness towards my mom, knowing that she would never, ever, ever ask me for that forgiveness. But I had to deal with it for myself. And I was listening to a pastor who is graciously working through the scriptures, phenomenally expounding upon them. And I noticed myself justifying my position over and over again. Well, he's not in my position and he is not in my position. And oh, he doesn't understand. He grew up in this perfect Christian home, I bet. He doesn't understand what I have gone through. And by the end of the radio show, I turned it off and I was in my car silently And I believe as clear as day, the Lord says, he might not, but I do. I know what you went through. I suffered too. I suffered greatly. If I have forgiven you, can you not forgive her? I just broke down and cried. And I forgave her. She didn't know it. There was no, I didn't send her a card. Mom, I've forgiven you for all the good things that you have done against me. But I noticed I started to grow in my Christian faith in a manner in which I hadn't before. And then I began to be able to pray for her in a whole new dynamic. My wife can this. And then God did what I never thought was possible in 2014. My mom came to saving faith in Jesus Christ and stopped drinking after 50 years. Amen. And I was so thankful for that. And I would encourage you, if you are wrestling with unforgiveness, I understand what you're going through. God is patient. God is kind. God is long-suffering. But He knows it's for your betterment that you forgive. And though I may not know your circumstances, He certainly does, just as He knew Jonah's. When you have time, I'd encourage you to read Luke 15, 25 through 32, when it comes to the forgiveness of the older brother towards his prodigal younger brother. But let us hop back into Jonah and wrap this up for this morning. And as God then asked Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Is this anger justified, Jonah? Notice what Jonah does. In a mature fashion, he goes out and pouts before God. And Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, and he made a booth for himself there, and he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. 
He goes out, makes a little booth, a little hut for himself out of whatever was there. And he's sitting there pouting before God and watching the city to see if God would maybe change his mind and wipe it out anyways. I love the Facebook videos of kids pouting, don't you? And I just thank God it's not mine, you know, uh, just pouting in the corner. I love this one, and I wish I could have found it. I was going to show it to you this morning because we all could have a good laugh, of kids who have been asked to do one of the most uh, disgusting things that could ever be asked of them, and that is to eat vegetables. And after they do, their face is contoured in such ways I didn't even think possible. And I swear this one kid's head spun around in a circle. But then they would pout in the corner because they had the audacity of being fed broccoli. But their pouting was exactly the manner in which I see Jonah sitting out here waiting to see what God would do. And notice how God reacts to Jonah's pouting in verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. God saw that the little hut that Jonah made wasn't sufficient and he was suffering under the heat of the day. And what does God do? Does God come in and blow the little hut away and say, listen, suck it up, cupcake, and let's go? Graciously, he provides for Jonah what Jonah cannot provide for himself the grace of God. And he covers Jonah. And Jonah in verse 6 was exceedingly glad because of the plants. Now, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and so that it withered. One of the great theological debates between Jerome and Augustine was what type of plant was this? I don't know if you knew that. Uh, They never came to a conclusion, but as a result, they debated it significantly. Many believe it's the castor plant that grows in that area, but we don't know. But the next day, God takes this plant away by a worm. And when the sun rose, verse 8, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked him that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. You know, one of my favorite Christmas movies of all times is A Christmas Story, okay? Blows wonderful life way out, okay? And I love when he's, you know, he's found to say the bad word and he's, you know, he's getting his punishment and it's a bar of soap in the mouth and it happens to be Life Boy. And then he goes to bed at night and he's saying, they're going to regret it one day and I'm going to come back and I'm going to be blind because it's Life Boy. And they're going to be so, so, uh, so, so sad that they ever, ever punished me in such a way. And that's exactly the way I feel. Okay, if I ever wrote a commentary, can you imagine how funny it would be? Because that's the way I see Jonah here. He's now crying out to God. He's saying, it's better for me to die, Lord. And once again, God asks him a question to confront his own heart. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, of course, how many kids? Yes, I do well to be angry enough to die. (laughs) I'm sorry. I could just see those little kids right now. I'll never eat broccoli again. You know. Yes, I do well to be angry enough to die. And the Lord said, to, said you pitied the plant. Jonah, you had all of this compassion for the plant. You pitied the plant. That's the word pity in the Hebrew means this compassion for this plant. And you did not labor for it. You were not the gardener who tended it. You were not the gardener who made it grow. I'm adding that to give you the point where God is trying to make, which came into being in the night and, and perished in the night. It was only here for one day. You didn't nurture this plant. I gave it to you. And you only had it for a day. And the only reason that you're missing it now is because it contributed to your creature comforts. 
And as soon as I took it away and things became a little difficult, where the sun beat down upon your head and you became hot and faint and you just wanted to die, what you experienced, Jonah, is nothing compared to hell. And you're already crying out to me. You're already asking to be spared from it. If, I, if you have pity on this plant, why should I not have pity and compassion on Nineveh? Which is exactly what he says here. Look at me, verse 11. And should I not have pity or compassion on Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? I agree with the Hebrew scholars who believe that this is referring to children. There's 120,000 children in that city. And also so much cattle. And the book ends in this way. It is a narrative that concludes without a response for Jonah because Jonah is meant to con- contemplate in which God, what God is saying to him. This plant that you had this minimal relationship with meant so much to you that you're crying over it and willing to die for it, but the 120,000 children of Nineveh you would see judged and taken away rather than me showing compassion in the wake of their repentance. You see how it's challenging the mind and the heart of Jonah. You see how it's calling Jonah to be uh, pulling this out of himself, drawing this out of himself, because God does not want to leave Jonah in the same position in which he found him. Jonah's heart needed to be dealt with, and so God is dealing with that heart, not through acts of uh, of punishment or uh, acts of harshness, but out of acts of kindness, drawing out of us what we need to be, what needs to be drawn out of us that we may repent of it and get right with God about it. It's incredible to me that Jonah ends in this way. We have no idea in the manner in which Jonah responded to that in which God called him to deal with in his own life. One wrote as he concluded, he says, Jonah is a remarkable, tragic example of the plight of the nation of Israel. Both Jonah and Israel were accused of religious disobedience and disaffection. What a tragedy when God's people care more for creature comforts than for the interests of God's will among the people. I want to share with you some concerns that have arisen during our study of the book of Jonah. It is things that I want to challenge you with personally, collectively, and also ask ourselves as a nation. Personally, many Christians seem unwilling to forgive I'm not talking about Christians who are struggling after severe wrong has been uh, done to them and they're wrestling with it before God. That is something that needs to be wrestled with before God. I'm talking about Christians who just simply are unwilling to forgive for the slightest little reason of being wronged. Really? Well, I have my rights. Yeah, as an ambassador for the kingdom of God, you have your right to be persecuted. You have your right to be hated by those because they hated our Lord. You have the right to be marginalized. But so many Christians want to spare themselves from any type of suffering, any type of injustice, any type of wrongdoing, and they are unwilling to forgive some of the silliest, smallest offensives. Offensives. I said that twice. And others make it a habit to look at these people who have wronged them unfavorably, thinking that the salvation in which they enjoy to God has not been offered or extended to those individuals who have wronged them. Jonah shows us clearly that if God can forgive Nineveh, he can forgive anybody. If God can work in Nineveh, he can work anywhere. I think about the church today here in the United States of America. We are coming to a point where I would say that Christians often display hatreds towards those who disagree with them. We saw how difficult the elections were recently. 
and how the ideologies of both parties are truly moving away from our ideology of a biblical worldview. It's becoming more difficult for us to get within the voting process and so forth. It is more difficult to look at our country and to see what direction we're heading. But yet as Christians, we still obey the Lord and we try to stem and we try to curtail the darkness from the encroachment of our entire nation. And the ideologies of those who are opposed to what we stand for and believe in, we have now chosen to hate in many cases rather than to pray for. We have chosen to vilify them and say, thus the Lord damn you to hell. Really? Do you not understand that many of us held those same ideologies before we got saved? When we see the caravan of migrant workers coming towards the border of the United States of America, we're all concerned about it. We're concerned about the potential disruption that it can cause and so forth. But should we not also be concerned about those who possibly might be amongst them for sincere reasons. It's a difficult road to, to, to balance. I am just saying to all of us, let us be very careful that our hearts not drift into areas that the Lord has prohibited. God has not called us to hate anyone, but to hate sin and evil and wickedness. And though the individual may partake in those things, it's not the individual that we wrestle against, but against principalities and powers and those who are above who are pulling on the strings of these individuals who are simply in bondage under the ruler of this world. Let us understand that we're ambassadors for the kingdom of God and that we have the one message that can free them from that bondage, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I think about our nation, and I want to read this to you if I may. The sign of Jonah was a sign given to the nation of Israel at the time of Jesus Christ. What is that sign? Let me read for you out of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 38 through 41. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, No, only an evil and adulterous generation seek a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Then, listen to verse 41. Then the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with, a, with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Nineveh repented in the wake of the preaching of Jonah, but we have the preaching of Jesus Christ through the Word of God. And if we do not respond to what Christ has said, the individuals who found that redemption in God at the time where Nineveh was called to repentance will condemn us. And for Israel to hear this, that their great adversary, the Assyrians, would be ones in condemnation of them rather than Israel in condemnation of the Assyrians was something very difficult for them to truly believe. But Jesus said so. Let us understand that as a nation, we too are going to be held accountable for what we have done by Jesus Christ. And before we go and criticize or critique anyone else, let us first ask God to lead our nation into repentance before Him. That we might be right with Him. That we take the plank out of our own eyes before taking the stone or the dust out of someone else's eye. These are just the beginning of the things that Jonah brings to our attention. I would encourage you to read the book over again after now that we have gone through it together. Ask God to look at our own hearts and to draw out from us those things that may be unpleasing to Him, that we may be a reflection of who God is to the world around us. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for this morning. We thank You for this time in Your Word. We thank You for the book of Jonah. And we ask that we would learn from it, Lord. And we ask all of this now in Jesus' name precious name.